as we continue in this season of Easter. It's good to remember that Easter continues after Easter Day. It's uh, often forgotten by the shops and others as they have all their discounts and all those different types of things. But the liturgical season of Easter continues and stays with us as we explore what this new life means, what these momentous events uh, mean for our faith and our understanding of our calling as individuals and as a church. Fiona and I have just returned from a week of leave. It has been timely and we've been able to enjoy the quietness of our house at Clayton Bay on the River Murray. It's upstream from Goolwa, if you know the area. And uh, as we do so, we've been, uh, I've been quite disciplined at switching off. I haven't been attending to my emails. I haven't been observing more than about 30 seconds of a quick scan of the news and I do not want to know what the latest legal peril is for Donald Trump. I honestly couldn't care. So I've been switching off and immersing myself in a book. Um, and it's uh, one of my favourite Australian authors called Kate Morton, who just for me had produced, just published her latest novel um, just in time for our break. So I was immersed in the book. You know what it's like when you immerse yourself in a book where the writer is so skilled at creating the scene and environment uh, a landscape and a social world that you just feel as though you're in that space. And this book happened to be set in the Adelaide Hills in a fictional town uh, supposedly sort of uh, near Nairn. And I could just picture the type of town and location that she is speaking of. So when you come out of the book, you've got to remind yourself about, oh, the reality of life and the other things that we now... Um, all part of the mix of what makes up our experience of life. Whether it is the moments of, uh, of beauty and the birds and the gardens and all that side of things, or whether it's the other realities that we know are um, no less part of the mix of our life. I want to focus on these two passages which are very profound in the nature of the faith and the foundations of what we believe. The biggest challenge we have for both the passages is their familiarity. We all know the, the episode of Jesus uh, entering into the room which had been locked out of fear for the wider Jewish authorities who may, came, may come and uh, arrest the 11 apostles um, so they locked themselves away in an upper room. But in that locked room, Jesus appears. And he, uh, they think, well, how can someone appear in a locked room? There must be a ghost, an apparition, a figment of their imagination. But Jesus points to the physicality of his body, his wounds. And no doubt they would have touched him and felt him and his life. There's no doubt that this was Jesus alive and well in their midst. So much so that the uh, uh, Thomas, who wasn't there the first time, missed out. And he just said, I just can't get my head around that. It, this is simply impossible. Until he too experienced the same encounter with Jesus. We can rec recall Jesus' words spoken to, to the apostles. The foundation of this Christian movement that was now to be launched 
as it continues into the reality of um, God's mission that continues. He breathed on them and the Holy Spirit came upon them. And he said, I'm sending you. And I send you with the power of the Spirit. Peace be with you. And I won't uh, elaborate further than other than to remind you that the word for peace in the Hebrew is shalom. Shalom be with you in your mission. May it grow, may it flourish, may it come to a wholeness. Yet we also had the second passage from Acts chapter 2. A stark contrast from Peter who was hiding in the... (coughs) Excuse me. In the shadows of the night of Jesus' arrest, disowning his knowledge, his relationship with Jesus. Peter, who was in that locked room out of fear for the authorities in Jerusalem. Next, too, we are in the context of Pentecost, the Spirit has come. And we did snip a passage out of the reading. We started in verse 14, where Peter starts his first evangelistic address. Peter, who's now standing before the crowds of fellow Jews and others who are in Jerusalem, anyone who's willing to come and listen, and we're told that hundreds did. Now, the reason we cut that little portion out is that we'll come to it later at Pentecost, and uh, the portion we've, we've come back to is the prophecy of the prophet Joel, who says how the Holy Spirit will come with a spirit of prophecy amongst young and old, male and female, all God's people will have their imaginations open to the reality of the kingdom. For the next few weeks we will be focusing on the book of Acts, and in particular chapter 2. And we're going to work our way through just how significant the themes that lay the faith and the foundations. This past week, as... uh, we had our break in Clayson Bay with uh, Fiona and John and um, Abby, our dog. Abby reminded us that she's entitled to a walk every day, usually in the morning. So she received her walk and we walked around the block behind us, which uh, some building is going on. In fact, one of the blocks immediately behind our house um, on Tuesday was just a uh, uh, excavated space the compacted earth had been passed down and as far as it went. By Wednesday, the foundations were laid for the framework for the flooring. By Thursday, the floor itself went down. By Friday, the framework was up for the house. Amazing how quickly they do it these days. And had I been so inclined to provide pictures for my sermons, which I usually do, Um, they would have been the pictures, but you're just going to have to imagine them. Because what we have in these two readings, in John and especially how it's elaborated in Acts, provides the foundation and the framework for our faith. They are the central truths upon which the, the gospel message is proclaimed that we have heard and respond. And the themes I want to follow just in a fairly more personal way, themes of injustice, themes of death, resurrection, vindication, that all lead us to the invitation to faith. Now, there's no doubt that 
Jesus' crucifixion was accompanied by massive injustice. I think pretty much whichever perspective you come from, you can see that Jesus was subject to uh, the mood change of a crowd, to the, um, the concern, the threats to the religious leaders to the extent that they were looking for an opportunity when the crowds would not be them for Jesus to be arrested, which they found in the Garden of Gethsemane. The betrayal and the disloyalty of a trusted follower in the terms of Judas, the, uh, the weakness and the inability of the Roman legal system as exercised by Pontius Pilate to, to do what would have been good and right, which was to release Jesus. And then the horror of the crucifixion, the darkness, the evil, the humiliation. The whole event is marked by injustice. And the question would have come out so powerfully if anyone dared to say it, would have been of God. Why? Why is this part of God's mission that you sent your son to experience such horrors? Now, we don't need any convincing that injustice continues in our world today. And the question of why is still one of the most powerful questions that we sit with. And it's often, more often than not, not answered. In this past week, as we were having our break, Fiona and I received an update on the health of one of my brothers. I have three older brothers. The four of us are quite close. We've all shared the same faith that we received as children through the generations. My brother Jonathan is probably the most like me. He um, loves sport, and he's a natural scholar. Jonathan, as some of you have known, has been um, struggling with a form of cancer, but even more troubling, the potential for motor neurone disease, and that has now been confirmed. So he is in a fairly advanced stage of motor neurone disease. Um, he's unable to talk, he's unable to eat, and... Those of us who have watched on that wretched disease know how quickly things can change. His wife, Ruth, is accompanying him in his various forms of treatment. He's able to come home for, for the, uh, the weekend, Easter, but he'll be back in hospital this week. Those realities sit with all of us in our own way. I know that's not unique, it's all part of our human experience. In the case of my brother with his five daughters, four of whom were overseas, have come back from overseas in various different directions. Uh, one is still to return shortly, facing the reality of his death. The question is, how much time do they have? It is sad. Whichever way you look at it, he's 69, fairly recently retired as a history master at Trinity College, someone who's given a lot of his life and energy to raising up not just a good number of uh, students through Trinity College in Sydney, Trinity Grammar, a um, number of clergy 
who are trained by him. Even as he tells me, Michael Jensen and others who are, he knew as students. He gave various assessments of their ability as students. It's a sad irony, and I think I've told this story before, but many years ago when I was a teenager attending a dinner party with uh, my brother was also there, and after the dinner we decided to play charades and uh, divided into two teams. Each team would write different things that had to be charaded out, um, acted out, uh, write on a slip of paper, put on a, a hat, and the other team would choose a piece and have to act it out. When it was my turn to put my hand in for the piece of paper that I took out, I discovered it was a very long piece of paper. It actually had been provided by my brother, which I sort of guessed as soon as I read it. So the, the book title that I needed to act out, and I haven't forgotten it, you can obviously tell, was J.I. Packer's introductory essay to John Owen's The Death of the Death and the Death of Christ. That is a pretty long book title. And I was working my way through it with great courage and, I thought, creativity until I got to the deaf stage and I managed to act out the deaf. I got the deaf and I did the deaf stage again and they said, oh, you've done the deaf bit. No, not going. The death of death in the death of Christ. It's a great Puritan classic text. And it is profound. Life often doesn't seem fair. And we can find ourselves asking that question, why? And there's no easy answer. Fiona and I have discovered over the years that rather than asking the question, why? We just need the assurance about who. As we've asked ourselves over John's disability, we've never really pursued why. Because the tests wouldn't actually change anything. The question is more about who is in the midst of our experience of life. Who do we trust in that space? And that is where Peter goes with this sermon. As he stands and speaks before the crowds in Jerusalem, fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I have to say. And he's surrounded by the other ten. Eleven of the apostles are up there speaking Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth, it is the person of Jesus who brings meaning to their experience of life. They don't know all the answers. Was a man accredited to you but by God, by miracles, wonders and signs? It's interesting that in any of the ancient texts that we have, that record the life of Jesus, both those who come within the Christian tradition and those outside. No one challenges whether Jesus was doing miracles. The evidence was too widespread. Too many people were out there. They knew he was doing miracles. The only question was, how could he be doing the miracles? Was he a conjurer? Was he deceiving people? I can't believe that Jesus was a conjuring act. The opposition said, well, the only way he can do it is if he's got an evil spirit. So they accused him of having the spirit of Satan within him. And Jesus responded to that, was saying it was pretty foolish of Satan 
to turn on himself if that's the case, because I'm undoing the work of Satan. The only credible answer, which is why the Jewish leaders feared for it so much, is that God must be working in and through Jesus. The power of God is evident in the life and the miracles, the healings, the restoration, the glimpses of shalom that Jesus brought. This man, Peter said, was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. Now we struggle with that. We know the horror of what Jesus went through. Jesus knew it in the Garden of Gethsemane. Peter's point is that this was part of God's missional purpose, that this was necessary to defeat the powers of injustice and of evil and of darkness and betrayal. Jesus couldn't do it from a distance. There's no magic wand to be waved. It's only by encountering it and absorbing it and then prevailing that the triumph of Jesus would have any power. Yet despite it being part of the mission of God, that did not abrogate the responsibilities of those who turned and acted so shamefully against Jesus. With the help of wicked men, Peter says, wicked are those who are unjust, unrighteous, those who have done the wrong thing and turned against Jesus. And it's underscored time again, are no less responsible for their actions. Put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But, remember last year I mentioned how I still have this lifelong response to the word but because of my headmaster when I was four and a half, and Mr Chalmers, who I'm sure was nine feet tall in class, said to me in solemn words that but is such an ugly word. I'm still trying to shake it off because but is actually a wonderful gospel word. (laughs) But, Peter says, despite being nailed and subject to this injustice and wickedness, but God raised him from the dead. The point is profound, though it might be subtle. It wasn't that Jesus was some superpower who just suddenly regained his breath and just struggled and pushed his way out of the tomb. Jesus was broken. Jesus was crushed upon the cross socially and in every way. As he was laid in the tomb, it was the Father who sent him into this world who raised him from the dead. In those idle moments when you look at YouTube clips and think, well, how did I just lose the last hour? One of the clips I was doing is that it's actually quite an interesting clip, and a trained opera singer analysing how different rock singers can use their voices quite amazingly. And she was doing an analysis of Jesus Christ Superstar in the original version and pointed out how amazing the use of the voice is through the songs that um, the original rock singers uh, brought to that song. Jesus Christ Superstar, when they encountered the, the amazing impact that Jesus made on the world of his time, asked the same question. But it resolved it in the sense that Jesus was a good man. 
idealistic, perhaps even a bit romantic in his hopes. But he was crushed by the political machinery of his day. He was crushed by the the agendas of those who were in power. And so he met his end. If that was all it was, then we wouldn't be here today. There were many other idealistic leaders in the first century and there have been many other idealistic leaders in the centuries ever since. History is, has many stories of those who have been crushed by powers that be. The fact that Jesus was raised by the Father gives a, a profound tick, an assurance that God has been at work in and through the ministry of Jesus in his death and in his resurrection. And as we'll see in next few weeks in his ascension, he has been raised. God is at work. Jesus is the one through whom God has brought about salvation and redemption and brought the whole creation shalom project back on track. Now Peter goes into a reflection on this to say that this is entirely as was prophesied by King David back in Psalm 16, the, the psalm that we had as our responsive psalm. King David said that he would not see, see uh, his body would be not subject to the grave and so on. And Peter says, well, actually, he did. David died. His tomb, Peter said, is still in Jerusalem to this day. He said, what David didn't quite understand, but we can now see, is that David's assurance that of his flesh, of his line, from the house of David, there would be an anointed king who would not be subject to the grave who would not be broken and abandoned, but would be raised into eternity. And that's how he uses Psalm 16. Verse 29, he says, Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried. His tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what is to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the body, realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. So Peter pauses, and you can sense them looking in the crowd in their eye. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we, the eleven who are standing with him, are witnesses of it. You see, the appearances of Jesus after his resurrection came to his disciples, came to people of faith. They already trusted in Jesus. They had questions of what is going on. And so they encountered the risen Jesus and they were commissioned to be witnesses to it to take this amazing good news out into Jerusalem and Judea and beyond the ends of the earth. In the 
gospel account in John, Thomas, once he encountered the risen Jesus, once he could engage the, the reality, the physicality of his resurrection, said, my Lord and my God. Jesus responded to him and saying, blessed are you, Thomas, but even more, those who believe, though they have not seen, yet believe on the testimony that we hear. We are those who believe on the testimony of those who have passed on that story, whether it is parents or grandparents or friends or others who have brought us an understanding of the faith. In the car during the week as we were driving with John, he asked a question which he's asked a few times now. But he asked the question, is Uncle John going to die? Our previous answers to that has been along the lines of, well, we all die one day. For the first time, again, I answered, yes, Uncle John will die. But we'll treasure every moment and we'll pray that he and his family treasure every moment that they have. This isn't just a faith that comes to us on paper. This isn't just a theoretical faith or something that we bring out at this time of every year after Easter. This speaks into the reality of our lives as we experience them here and now. This is our faith. As we reflect on it, we know that's the truth. I'm sure you are like myself. As I get older, I have more questions than ever. The question of why is not easily answered and those who step into that space and try and give explanations more often cause hurt and harm than anything else. But we all know who, whom our faith and trust why am I a Christian, not just a religious person? I am a Christian because I believe that Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah, is the Messiah, and has done something that no one else has done. I will give testimony and I will stand for him, I hope in God's grace, through each and every one of the seasons and moments and experiences that we face in life and in death and in resurrection. Amen.